Tonight we are going to start in the book of 1 John. We're going through the Bible, Genesis through uh, Revelation. And we are in 1 John this evening. Looking forward to studying the book of 1 John together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you desire fellowship with us. And as we begin the book of 1 John, we pray our joy would be made full, that our joy uh, would be complete, that you would open up your word to us, that you'd open up our hearts to us. And God, we come in faith, Lord, we come in desperation, in, in need of you, that you would speak to our hearts, and we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the truth of fellowship. And fellowship in the Greek, the, the word is koinonia, and it means to share in common. And when you think of a group of people that are sharing something in common, there's a lot of power. I think of a sports team that's seeking after a championship. There's a lot of strength and unity and determination uh, that's found in that. You think of a business endeavor where a group of people get together and sacrifice time and talents and resources to make that uh, succeed. You think of The Lord of the Rings with J.R. Tolkien, if you've uh, read The Fellowship of the Rings or even better, watch the movies. Uh, you see this group, this kind of odd group that wouldn't normally be together, come together in fellowship uh, for the goal of destroying the, this ring that brings out the greed in people. And I think oftentimes in our culture right now, what we're really longing for uh, is community. That's what the world calls it. That's what the un unbelievers call it. And even uh, people that don't know Christ as our Savior, they're marketing community. They're saying, if, if you join this gym, you'll have community. If you join this organic cooking club, you're going to have community. If you do a backyard garden, you're going to have community. If you come to this community coffee house, you're going to have relationship. And everyone's longing for relationship and those things apart from Christ can never fully satisfy. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but ultimately our need to belong to Christ and to belong to one another is only found in Jesus and relationship inside of the body of Christ. And I think as believers, a lot of times we miss out on the fellowship that the Lord really intended. And we find in John chapter 1 that John, he, he gives us the importance of our fellowship with Jesus, that we share in common with Jesus, with, with Christ, and then our fellowship one uh, with another. And in that, our joy is made full. In that, our joy is complete. Because it's a new book for us, let's do a quick background on the, this epistle. Is for, first, it never tells us in the text who the author is. In Paul's writings, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We don't get that in the introduction of 1 John. We assume that it is John because in these first few verses, it's very clear that it's an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. And so that limits it down to the original 12 disciples. And of those 12 disciples, the tone of the letter matches John. So we believe the human author to be John. So what about this man, John, if you're new to the scriptures? We know he grew up on the Sea of Galilee with Peter and his brother, James, fishing. Jesus called him to be a disciple, and he's very different than Peter. When Christ was buried and risen from the dead, Peter and John go to the tomb. John gets there first. He makes that clear in his writings. He wants everybody to know that he was faster than Peter. 
But John, he, he stays outside the tomb and he doesn't go in. He seems to be more methodical than Peter, where Peter comes huffing out of breath and he runs right into the tomb. John's writings in, in a lot of ways are more detailed in, in the sense that, that he's going to come at an issue this way and before you know it, you're convicted of your sin and Christ is revealed to you. Where Peter's approach is much more direct, isn't it? We just studied Peter's epistle. I mean, Peter's the kind of guy, he's just going to punch you in the face with truth, Right? But, but John, he, he's laying out a plan, and he's, he's methodical in, in his thinking, and so he has a, a very different personality than Peter. And God has made us all, and he uses our different personalities. He went from being nicknamed the Son of Thunder, him and his brother, James and John. There's a point in the Gospels where they say, hey, Jesus, let's just do the Elijah thing and call down fire from heaven and roast these guys. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what I have in mind. So he goes from wanting God's judgment to being known as the apostle of love. You'll find in his, his letters this emphasis of loving God and loving one another. Church history tells stories of John as an old man being brought before the church and saying, my little children love one another. And then he was done, and that was his sermon. You guys would be blessed if that was my sermon tonight, right? And but he became the apostle of love because of the transforming work of Christ in, in his life. The, the theme of this letter really is fellowship with Christ and how that results in fellowship with one another. It's a practical letter written to believers of the importance of abiding in Christ and loving one another. We have no hint of the original recipients of this letter. We, we don't know who, who they are. It's not listed for us. And we have no hint of the date. So let's get into verse 1. That which was from the beginning. It's very clear in these first few verses that John is referring to Jesus and he declares that which was from the beginning. John 1.1, the gospel of John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. At the beginning, Christ was already there. We have the eternal existence of Christ as God. That which was from the beginning. He was already in existence at the beginning. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. John is giving us a very personal account of his relationship with Jesus Christ. What he experienced. And he goes through his senses and he says, first, what we have heard. Try to put yourself in the shoes of John the disciple and what he heard from Christ. Whether it was Christ alone praying and the disciples came and listened to Jesus cry out to the Father. To hear Jesus teach on the Sermon on the Mount or the Olivet Discourse. To be in the boat in the midst of the storm of the Sea of Galilee where they're wondering if the storm's going to take their life. And Jesus says, be still, and calms the storm. To Lazarus, come forth. That would have been a fun one to, to listen to, right? Here's Lazarus, he's dead, dead as a doornail, been in the tomb for three days, and here's Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth. We know John was the only disciple that was at the crucifixion of Christ, and he heard the words of Jesus when Jesus looked at him and said, behold your mom. And behold your son, saying, take care of, of my mom. He heard the words of Christ, it is finished, it is finished. And then John heard, heard the words that he's not here. 
He, he, is, he is risen. So all of the things that he heard of Christ, but also the things that we've seen and the things that we've looked upon. They saw Jesus weep at Lazarus' tomb. And the scripture is very clear in the original language. Christ was, was bawling. And the, the depth of watching Christ weep at, at the death of, of his friend. Watching Jesus spit in the mud, make some mud with his saliva. Man, he's a man's man. Men love to spit, right? And, and then taking the mud and putting it on the blind man's eyes. If we were in John's sandals, we'd be like, what are you, what are you doing, right? And then the blind man is healed when he goes and, and he washes. To see Jesus multiply the bread and to feed the 5,000, all of these miracles that Christ watched, but then to see Christ be nailed to the cross, to see Christ rise from the dead and ascend to, to be with the Father. Here's another one that speaks of how personal and intimate this relationship with Christ is, and our hands have handled you think of the affection that happened between Christ and his disciples. Twelve dudes and Jesus hanging out for three years, I'm sure there was some wrestling that took place. I was sure that Jesus probably tripped John the Baptist a few times, and, or John the disciple, excuse me, and John returned the favor. We've handled him. We've touched him. I bet there were times when John was having a tough day and Jesus just put, put his hand on his shoulder. Say, hey, it's gonna, it's gonna be all right. I'm sure all of the disciples inspected the wounds of Christ when he rose from the dead. We know Thomas did, but he was doubting. But I'm sure Jesus extended that to all of his disciples. We, we've handled him. We, we've touched him. And we're gonna find in the next verse that this fellowship that John had with Jesus is extended to us as well. But also in the teaching of 1 John, it's clear this church was facing false teaching. And one of them was Gnosticism. And it was this teaching about Christ that he didn't have a physical body, that it was more of a, of a ghost-like being. That he wasn't real, incarnate. And, Jesus is, and John is declaring, no, he, he's definitely real. We handled the word of life. And we go on into verse 2. The life was manifest. Christ is life, and his life was manifest. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Jesus has given us eternal life to those who believe. But that eternal life existed prior. Christ is eternal. We were in the car yesterday driving as a family, and our son Wyatt asked the question, is God a thousand years old? And so we started talking about the eternal existence of God, right? And here John says that Jesus was enjoying eternal life. He was eternal life, and he was with the Father. How good is eternal life without relationship? What makes eternal life so enjoyable is the relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the fellowship that they have together. The fact that when we go home to be with the Lord, we're entering into that relationship with, with our Father. What I enjoy also about verse 2 is John is sharing what he has and is experiencing about Jesus. And that's so important for us in our relationship with the Lord is to experience Christ and to share Christ. What are you experiencing about Christ? What kind of fellowship are you having with him? How is Christ encouraging you? How is he convicting you? How is he real in your life? Then share that. 
Share that with believers. Share that with with unbelievers. In verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes tonight, it's the promise of fellowship. First with fellowship, it's the promise of fellowship. We have the same access to fellowship as John the disciple. Wow. I wonder how close of a relationship John had with Jesus after the ascension of Christ. Jesus says, lo, I'm with you always till the ends of the age. Before Christ ascended to heaven, he had a habit of just busting into the room with the disciples. They'd be hanging out, and Jesus is like, hey, doesn't use the door. Peace be unto you. They're probably thinking, he is definitely with us all the time, and he may just manifest himself physically, so we need to be aware of his, his presence. And when Jesus said, I'm with you always, you get to fellowship with me, how much through the day was Jesus and John talking with one another? How much was John praying without ceasing? And he says, now you have this opportunity to fellowship with Christ. Yes, to know about Christ intellectually, but to share in common in Christ. This desire, this need for community, this need for relationship, this need to belong, it's ultimately found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if we try to fill it just with people, we're never going to be satisfied because ultimately that void can only be satisfied in a relationship with Christ. And that's what's expressed in verse 4. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. John says, this is the reason I'm writing is I want you to have joy. And I want your joy to be complete. I want your joy to be full. It's similar to what Jesus told us in John 15. He says, I'm giving these commands to you that you would obey them, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So we have the opportunity to have the joy of Christ and to have complete joy. You know this, but happiness is different than joy, isn't it? Happiness is based on our circumstances. You know, you got to raise happiness. Loss of happiness, you got fired, right? Happiness, you feel great. Loss of happiness, you got the stomach flu for three days, right? You get the idea. Happiness comes and goes. It's a roller coaster. It's based on our circumstances. But joy is based upon who God is in our fellowship with Christ. And if we make our fellowship with Christ our chief goal and our chief aim, then we can always have joy, and our joy can be complete. A lot of times, though, we start looking for joy in other areas, sometimes sinful areas, but sometimes in things that aren't sinful, but they're actually a blessing from God. You may be looking to your family to be your joy. You may be looking to the church, the body of Christ, to be your joy. You may be looking to service, ministry, to to be your joy. But if those things are above Jesus Christ, they're not in their proper place. They're, They're an idol, and we can't enjoy them the way that God intended. Once you make Christ your joy and fellowship with him, then you can enjoy your spouse. You're not expecting them to be living water. That's a lot to lift up to. Imagine you're in premarital counseling. You're like, really, I want you to be the Messiah in my life. I need you to be Christ incarnate and to satisfy my every need. Like, run for your life, right? Your child's born and brought into the the world, and you say, you know what? You're going to be my Messiah. 
you're sadly mistaken. That's not how it works, is it? But when Jesus is your Messiah, when you're looking to him to satisfy you, then you can enjoy your spouse because you understand they're, they're in their proper place. You can enjoy your job. You can enjoy your ministry. You can enjoy that hobby because it's a great hobby, but it's a, a terrible savior. So where's your fellowship with Christ? What is your joy telling you about your fellowship with Christ? Is your life absent of joy? Could it be that there's an absence of fellowship with Christ? And John's saying, look, you have open door to fellowship with Christ. Anytime, anywhere, you can draw your attention to Christ, draw near to him in prayer and worship, opening up your heart to him, and the Lord will make our joy to be complete. In verse 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. As we get into this next section, it brings us into our second point, and it's the problem with fellowship. God is light. John loves communicating to us who God is. When he declares that God's light, it's that God's perfect, that he's holy, that he's loving, that he's kind, that he's just, that he's true, he's good. God is light, and in God dwells no darkness at all. In verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The enemy to fellowship with Christ is darkness and sin. Because if Christ is light, if I want to have fellowship with him and be close to him, then I can't walk in the darkness. Because darkness is going to prevent intimate, close fellowship with Christ. And here's the claim. If we say we have fellowship with God, that's what we're claiming A lot of times as believers, and I I don't think it was any different when John was pastoring, we tend to overclaim our spirituality, don't we? We we tend to to overestimate our relationship with Christ, and we're like, yeah, me and Jesus, you know? I I love Jesus. I got fellowship with Jesus. I'm I'm walking with Jesus. And so John kind of tests this a little bit. He's saying, okay, you say you've got fellowship with Jesus, but yet you're walking in darkness, when he's describing walking in darkness, he'll use it a lot of times in First in John. Walk describes lifestyle. What he's saying is your lifestyle is in the darkness. And if your lifestyle is in the darkness, but you're claiming fellowship with Christ, then you lie and you're not practicing the truth. So who are you lying to? Well, you're lying to God, you're lying to yourself, and you're lying to others. We can deceive ourselves sometimes. We go, man, I... I think I've got this great walk with Christ, but yet Christ might be saying, you've got a lifestyle that's in in the darkness, and that's keeping you from fellowship with, with the light. This is uncomfortable, but a lot of times we tend to blame Christ for our lack of fellowship. We go, you know, Christ is distant. Christ is pushing me away. You know, Christ is not wanting to be close to me. But is that biblical? Is that scriptural? What, is, what do we have with every indication of Christ? He wants to fellowship with us. He's made a way. He, he died. He rose again. So we have open access to the throne room of God. So if there is a problem in the relationship, it's on my end. Does that make sense? And sometimes God in his love will say, Eric, I, I want to be close to you, but you want to be in darkness. So let me know when you're done with darkness, and then we can be close. But we can't have it both ways. 
there's a motivator uh, for us to not live in darkness because of the destruction of darkness. You know, we, we think of it that way. But also to think about, man, if I live in the light, I get to have fellowship with Jesus. You know, what's the motivation to live in the light? It's so that we can be close to Christ. Is it simply to be moral? No. I want to be close to Christ, so I want to live in the light. And thankfully, there's an answer to the, the problem with fellowship. So if we walk with the if we, but, excuse me, <laughs> if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So sin and darkness prevents fellowship with Christ, but it also prevents fellowship with believers. And John's saying here, if you want to have fellowship with one another, walk in the light, walk with Jesus. The closest way in a human relationship is for two people to walk in the light of Jesus Christ. Husbands and wives, you're going to have your greatest closeness as the husband and the wife both set their eyes upon Christ and walk in the light. The greatest friendships that we will have on this side of heaven is when two friends decide they're going to fully be in love with Jesus Christ. Then you have fellowship with, with, with one another. But take Christ out of the equation, and we're not going to experience this kind of fellowship. We're not going to experience this kind of closeness. So could there be sin in my life that's keeping me from fellowship with Christ and keeping me from the body of Christ? That if I were to get that right with the Lord and confess that to the Lord and forsake that, how that would bring me into closeness with Christ and closeness into the body of Christ. Maybe at some point you felt this with a, another believer. You go, something's happened in our friendship. Is it me? Maybe it is. And you examine, you go, I don't think it's me. And you come to realize it's an issue of sin and compromise and that's affecting the friendship. You want to have deeper friendship with, with them, but it can only go so far because it's not found in the depths of Christ. Does, does that make sense? So here John's saying, look, you're created for relationship, relationship with Jesus and relationship with one another. And I love the end of verse seven here. It's not that we're absent of sin. It's not that we're absent of compromise because if we're walking in the light, then the blood of Jesus is cleansing us from all sin. So there's a difference between a lifestyle in the darkness and a believer who stumbles, a believer who falls, a believer who sins, gets right with the Lord and gets right with, with the body of Christ. Do you see the difference? He's saying, look, if you're walking with Christ in the light and you sin, you confess it and the blood of Jesus forgives you of your sin and you have that close relationship with one another. In verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is, is not in us. So if we're like, man, sinless perfection, right here, right? We've deceived ourselves, we've tricked ourselves and the truth is not in us. The truth is declaring to us that we were sinners and we continue to sin. In verse nine, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is point number three, it's provision for fellowship. The problem to fellowship is sin, but the provision to fellowship is the blood of Jesus Christ. Please hear me on this. First John 1 John 1.9 is written to believers. This is not a, a verse of conversion. This isn't written to unbelievers. This is written to us as believers. And I hope you understand this. 
When you sin as the child of God, you don't lose your salvation. So why in the world are we confessing our sin? So that we can be in right relationship with God. If there's sin in my life and I haven't acknowledged it and I haven't repented of it, it's going to affect my friendship with God. It's going to affect my fellowship with God. We think of this in relationship with family, you know, inside of a, of a healthy marriage. Now, do you ever sin against your spouse? Oh, no, that's, that's somebody else. Of course we do, right? Now, hopefully your spouse doesn't divorce you because you sinned against them. You're like, oh, I really did expect sinless perfection. You were supposed to be the Messiah for me. So hopefully your spouse stays married to you but the relationship will be frosty until you confess your sin. There's no way around it. You know, until we humble ourselves and say, you know what, would you forgive me? I sinned against you and it was really wrong the way that I treated you and I want to make, make this right. And then the relationship get, gets reconciled and it's the same with Christ. Christ is waiting for us to, to come before him, to go before him and confess. What does that mean? It means to agree. God, God, you're right. I, I am being prideful. I'm being selfish. This is really keeping me from my relationship with you. Would you please forgive me? This is a promise where there is something that's required of us. It says, if, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's a big if sometimes, isn't it? It's so hard to admit, I'm wrong. I've sinned. I don't have an excuse for this one. I can't blame my dad. I can't blame my mom. It's not the body of Christ's fault. No, it's, it's my fault. I have chosen this. I've done this. And as we agree with God, then his promise is he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His faithfulness, because he promised to forgive So he'll be faithful to his promise to provide forgiveness. And just because, as we'll see in just a moment, Jesus paid the price for our sin. So the price is paid in full, and God can, in his justice, forgive our sin. To not hold our sin against us. To truly forgive us. Then also to cleanse us. And that's so important with sin. We need to be cleansed from our sin. I think of it this way. If you do any type of cooking, I enjoy eating scrambled eggs. I'll scramble up some eggs in the morning. And that pan needs to be washed fairly soon after. What, what happens if you let the, you know, let's just say, let the scrambled egg sit there for a couple days in the pan? It gets a whole lot worse, doesn't it, than if you just take care of it right away. Another love of my life, after my wife, she's number one, but ice cream, is another love of my life. And what, what happens, yeah, I got an amen. That's good. If you let that ice cream stay in the bowl for a couple of days, it's so much harder, isn't it? And then the cleansing process has to take place and the scrubby's got to get applied to the pan, to the bowl, and you scrub and scrub and scrub. So we want to keep short accounts with God. Don't let sin harden in your heart, you know? Six minutes after we've sinned is a lot better than six weeks to get right with the Lord, six months to get right with the Lord, six years to to get right with the Lord. So 
Don't wait. But even if you wait, God in his power will cleanse us from our sin if our hearts will be broken before him. And Acts 3 verse 19 is this promise. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Have you ever experienced that? Something's wrong and what's wrong is my heart with the Lord. And then when I get my heart right with the Lord and I confess before the Lord, there's refreshing that comes from his presence. But the refreshing comes after getting right with him after we turn to him in in repentance. We go on into verse 10. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So if I'm saying, God, I have no sin, I haven't sinned, I'm calling God a liar because God's declared in his word that I'm a sinner. We're gonna look at the first two verses of chapter two and then we'll be done. My little children. (laughs) Don't you love hearing this from the apostle John? probably getting up there in years. It says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. God's heart and intent is that we wouldn't sin. John desires for these group of believers to to not sin because sin brings destruction in our lives. But thankfully the verse goes on and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Advocate means mediator or one who speaks in our defense. Jesus is speaking in our defense. It's a legal term. So Christ is going before the Father, and he's saying, Father, would you forgive Eric based upon his righteousness? Jesus Christ, the righteous. That makes him the perfect advocate for our sin. It really doesn't have anything to do with me. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It has to do with our faith in Christ and his righteousness. And what a great advocate. What a great mediator. I couldn't mediate for myself. I couldn't stand before a holy God and say, God, I deserve to be forgiven. I'm dependent completely upon the mercies of God through Jesus Christ. He's the provision for our fellowship. In verse two, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, and not only for ours, I'm having a terrible time reading tonight. I'm gonna back up. Verse two, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. Hey, I got it. All right. So so what in the world does propitiation mean? It, It means to appease the wrath of. It's the atoning sacrifice. It's Jesus appeasing the wrath of God where our sin demands punishment and Christ took the place for our, our punishment. And not only for our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. There is this idea out there in some circles of theology that, that Jesus only died for the elect, that he only paid for the sin of those who, who would believe. For me, it's fairly simple because in order for an invitation to be an invitation, it has to be an invitation. I know that's really complex, but when Jesus says, whoever believes will be saved and have everlasting life, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be be saved, Christ died for the sins of the whole entire world, whether they believe or or they don't believe. And what causes someone to go to hell is they rejected that offer. They rejected the blood of Jesus. Jesus paid the price for their sin, and they said, I don't want it. So we, with confidence, 
can declare to people, Jesus died for your sin. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. It says right here in 1 John 2, 2, he's paid the price for not only for our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. So for me, I've got to stick with the scripture. And I think it does affect how you view unbelievers, whether you believe that God truly died for them or not. You know, we should, as we look in scripture, go, you're made in the image of God and Christ died for your sins. And if I don't believe that Christ died for their sins, then that's going to affect the way I interact with them, and that's the way that I'm going to affect, share the gospel with them. I don't want to be sharing the gospel with people in the back of my mind going, are you elect or not elect, and did Jesus die for your sins or not? I don't know, and I hope he knows, and, but I'm going to share John three sixteen anyway, you know. It's like, no, with confidence, I can be able to say, look, Jesus died for your sins. It says it right here in 1 John 2, 2. And he's giving you this invitation and he wants to draw you unto himself. So a few application questions this evening. How is my fellowship with Christ? How is my fellowship with Christ? What is joy revealing about my fellowship with Christ? Is there sin in my life that needs to be confessed? That I need to get right with the Lord? I think there's three very clear applications from the scriptures tonight. First is invest in fellowship with Christ. Invest in fellowship with Christ. Take a time to go on a walk and, and talk with the Lord. Allow your commute to become your sanctuary. Do you have a traffic light that you sit at to get out of your neighborhood that feels eternal? It's three or four minutes of every day. Redeem that time back. And enjoy that fellowship with the Lord. If you're putting your head on, on the pillow, this is an opportunity to fellowship with Christ. Talk with the Lord in your heart, what you're thankful for, what you're worried about, what you need his, his help with. Open up his word and believe that he's wanting to speak to you. It's his love letter to you and fellowship with Christ through the word of God. Worship him. What a great way to, to fellowship with the Lord. Share with other believers what Christ is doing in your life. Hear what Christ is doing in their life. Invest in fellowship with Christ. And then confess and forsake sin. We've got to believe that God's word is timely for us as we study the word and we take communion tonight. That there may be an aspect where God's saying, okay, you need to deal with this. This is an area of sin in your life. It's time for you to agree with God. It's time to stop making excuses. Confess to the Lord and receive the forgiveness and the cleansing from sin. Why would we wait? Why would we stay in the darkness when we could come in the light and enjoy fellowship with Christ and enjoy fellowship with one another? Maybe every relationship you have with another believer comes back empty and sour. And you've been blaming the body of Christ for years. You've been saying it's the church's fault. It's the believer's fault. But we've never stopped to examine the equation and go, well, maybe what's wrong in my own heart? Maybe there's darkness inside of me that's preventing me from having meaningful relationship with believers. And God's saying, okay, it's time. It's time to look a little bit deeper and acknowledge to the Lord. And what a great invitation from the Lord as we confess sin to receive forgiveness. And then this is so important Trust in the advocate for our sins. You can hear this message and walk away in absolute condemnation. 
and not enjoy sweet fellowship with Jesus and you've missed it all together. There is a beautiful promise here of the provision of Jesus Christ for our sin. He loves you enough to be your advocate. He loves you enough to take your sin, my sin, upon himself so he can go before the Father and say, ah, I have paid the price for their sin. And leave tonight trusting fully in the blood of Jesus Christ. When we don't receive the forgiveness of God, we're saying that the blood of Jesus is not enough. Going, I don't, I don't really know if your sacrifice is enough for me to be forgiven of my sin. And in essence, we're doubting the sacrifice of Christ, aren't we? And in some sense, we might even be a little bit prideful because we're saying, my sin's really special, you know? I'm such a bad sinner that the blood of Jesus couldn't be enough for me. And Jesus is like, really? Okay, you're a special category of sinner, right? And there takes a lot of humility to go, you know what? I believe the word that Jesus is the righteous advocate, that his blood is enough, that I can stand confident in the blood of Jesus and I'm forgiven. And I think communion is the perfect way to apply this message tonight is that we'll come to the communion table take some extra time, examine ourselves, invite the Lord to show us areas of sin, press into Christ. Christ, I want to fellowship with you. What in my life is keeping me from fellowship with you and with the body of Christ? So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you're pursuing relationship with us. I know that it's so easy for me to get off track and to look to other things for a source of joy. But Jesus, you're more than enough. And we thank you that we have access to fellowship with you. We do pray during worship and communion that you would speak to our hearts, that you would reveal areas of darkness, areas of sin that we need to confess and get right with you, and that you would bring that time of refreshing, that we would be restored in relationship with you, or where we need to make things right inside of the body of Christ and share with brothers and sisters that we've offended and we pray that you would restore and rebuild relationship. And Jesus, we thank you that you are sufficient, that you're more than enough, that your sacrifice upon the cross, your death and resurrection is what gives us life and we're robed in your righteousness. We pray for anyone that doesn't know you, that hasn't received you, that tonight would be the night where they would be saved. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.